Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. Living wages. On the surface, sounds simple. Pay a person enough that they can live. Not just survive, but live. Paying someone a living wage should bring real impact. After all, poverty is the crux of so many societal issues. From domestic violence to health, education to happiness, raise someone out of poverty and statistically, these problems lessen. Scratch the surface, however, just a little, and living wages become much more complicated. How do you measure what the living wage really is? How do you manage differences by location? And what happens when the cost of living changes, which it does frequently? We'll meet Social Impact Pioneer and my guest today. Asfar Khan, who is a true expert in living wages. Asfar is a senior economist at the Anchor Research Institute. But prior to that, he worked with the International Labour Organization, the ILO, for over two decades, where his principal positions included head of research for the fundamental principles and rights at work, deputy director, socio-economic security programme, and migration policy specialist. Asva holds a PhD in development studies and economics. And he has also taught at the Institute of Social Studies in The Hague, the Netherlands, and was the director of the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA's global programme of training in population and development. Asva, we could talk on so many different topics today, but we are going to zoom in on living wages. I'm delighted to welcome you. Thank you so much for giving your time. So, Asva, great to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, my pleasure, Katie. Asva, I wanted to start off our conversation today. Let's start from the beginning. What does mm-hmm. living wages mean in action? You know, I think it's a structural issue. The whole world of work is changing, and uh, it's not changing for the better for a uh, you know, great chunk of the population. There has been growing inequality, although absolute poverty has quite has gone down, but there is relative poverty and inequality is increasing quite fast. And uh, the point is that a lot of people find themselves in very insecure kind of status. Much of it basically stems from different factors. You know, when I was working in the ILO, there was uh, we had a kind of a framework. And we said that when you look at the security of workers, you can't just sort of look at it from the purely perspective of, uh, let's say, income or uh, employment or uh, there there are factors which uh, interconnect. So, you know, we identified about like six or seven chunks of critical issues that um, workers are confronted with. And we call them like labor market security, 
Now, that's a kind of a security. If there are enough jobs to go around, people feel more secure. But um, in this day and world, what is happening is that there are not enough uh, jobs going around. And uh, people feel insecure because they are also in, in a, you know, they have trained for something. And many of the people are working outside what they were trained for. You know, you see many um, people, particularly from South Asia, who are migrated to uh, the United States, for example, and uh, they work as taxi drivers, or they're just looking for some kind of an employment to uh, uh, earn a kind of an income for themselves and for their families. I'm reminded, actually, of uh, a dictum, um, something that Karl Polanyi, the great uh, economic historian, Hungarian economic historian, he once wrote in his book, The Great Transformation, and I can quote that line because I've been saying it all the time. Uh, the line is that the pursuit of material gain is the only institutionalized incentive of life in a market society. Now, what he meant by that was that, look, everything that you need is, is in shops. Your food, your clothing, your health, your education. And, you know, you have to access that. But how do you go about accessing that? You can only access that if you have the wherewithal, income, for example. So that is fundamentally important um, uh, to consider. And recently, we did some work on uh, with the Routledge uh, Press on sustainable diets. And our point was that, look, you can have, you can define what a sustainable diet is. But in the end, it doesn't mean anything if people cannot access that diet. And the only way you can access it is with, with money, with cash if you have it on hand. And that's where the living income comes in. Because many people who are working are not paid the, the proper dues. And uh, well, we can talk about the Universal Declaration, and we can talk about uh, the two covenants on uh, human rights. All these instruments basically talk about, I mean, that, that rights are um, best provided, or if people, you know, the, the fundamentals of these rights are that people should have an adequate and a decent life for themselves and their families. And living income comes in there because if you have a living income, then you have the wherewithal to access services. You have the wherewithal to access your food and to the other basic necessities of life. So it is important that, that uh, people move towards looking at living wages. We have looked at other fact, uh, issues as well, such as minimum wages, we have looked at poverty line wages, but it just doesn't seem to uh, connect. And the, the thing about living wages is, is that when we uh, talk about living wages, it's not just something that comes out of the, out of the blue, uh, but this is something that you have to work on. And you have to identify what living wages really are, and how do you go about estimating a living wage. So somebody comes up and asks you, Okay, uh, somebody, I mean, people uh, need to have a living wage. And you ask, well, what is the living wage? Um, what do you put it in terms of figures? So what we do is that we just sort of, we have constructed a framework, a methodology through which we basically come up with a living wage. Now, the point is that this, the living wage is something which is fundamental for people to have 
to be able to live a decent life. Pretty fundamental. And I was wondering, I mean, as far you are dedicating your sort of waking hours at the moment to championing living wages and, and living incomes, would you mind sharing with us a bit about what's your journey that's brought you to this point? What has brought you to the point where you are thinking that we have got to figure this out, we've got to get focused and we've got to get people to adopt it? Well, I would say it's basically my interest. I mean, all my life, all my working life, I have championed workers' rights. And, you know, I was I spent 24 years in the International Labour Organization. And there I worked on various issues, but mainly most of them were related to alleviation of poverty and providing some kind of a security uh, for the workers and their families the world over. And I was involved in different kinds of programs that focused on socioeconomic security, on population and poverty, looking at the interface of uh, development with population issues, with urbanization, with migration. Why do people migrate? What are their reasons for migrating? So labor issues have always been very close to my heart. I champion that uh, not just in uh, terms of uh, poverty issues, but I also looked at it quite um, directly. For example, when I was posted in um, uh, Lebanon with the ILO, I was looking at migration. And there are, I mean, you know, most of the uh, Arab states, except for Saudi Arabia, and Oman, I would say all the other states have more expatriates living there than the national populations. But these expatriates, and certainly those at the lower end of the skill ladder, were the ones who were being literally exploited. And it was almost like uh, slavery. And I had come out into the, in the open, and I had talked to people, and uh, with Rob Booth in The Guardian, we had, uh, uh, you know, broken the story on Qatar in 2013 in The Guardian, and that was the first time. But that didn't give me any brownie points from anywhere. Instead, the people felt that, um, you know, I was just stirring up a hornet's nest and, you know, what the issues have been and what, what people have been talking about. So labor issues have always been very dear to my heart and workers' rights because I honestly and believe that... Uh, uh, you know, everybody has a, a right to a decent life. And why is it that some of us do have that right and others are deprived of that right? So that's been my journey. And for a long time, for 40 years, I have worked on labor issues. And, um, you know, I will continue to do so. Oh, and thank you very much for doing so. And as you say, you know, the championing of the people who just, you don't have, if you don't have voice and you don't have, the time, the energy, or the know-how how to how to make that voice be heard. You know, it's it needs people like you. So thank you very much. On behalf yeah. of everybody, I think. If I may, Katie, I mean, I mean, I just like to point out something that I had started on with uh, earlier, but I didn't complete it, you see, because as I mentioned, that the whole world of work is changing. You know, the kind of jobs that you had in the past are um, are not there. I mean, you know, previously when you had uh, employment, you had certain kind of a protection. You could not be dismissed arbitrarily. You know, you had a right to severance. You had a right to a kind of a notice. And most importantly, you had right to certain benefits that were provided by your employers, like in the social security payments and health care coverage, education coverage for children. They no longer exist. The jobs that are basically being created 
are just there that provide certain some income, but other kinds of protections have disappeared. And one of the fundamental things is that you know you can have all sorts of protection in in work, but what um, you also need is a certain kind of a representation. There aren't that many with the deunionization that's happened all over the world. What you find is that there are not good representative bodies that can represent the interests of of the workers. It's really interesting because I always think that you know we're moving forward, even if not at the right pace or in the you know at the speed that we're hoping to, we are moving forward. So you know, interesting or sad to hear you saying actually your labour rights are going backwards and the, and the information and data are suggesting actually it's becoming more unequal than it was before. Exactly. Uh, what you do find in terms of uh, the labour rights, you know, all these, the, you know, you're moving from a welfare system to a workfare system. There were certain benefits that you were entitled to unconditionally. But now many governments, particularly, I mean, you would know, I mean, that's been happening in Britain, to access any kind of a benefits, you have to show that you are in job search, and then you have to take up certain kinds of jobs which, for which you are not trained. And that creates a certain kind of an insecurity for people, for workers, and not just for them, but I mean, it trickles down to other members of their families. And in, particularly in the developing world, for example, what you find is that when that happens, Many of uh, certain social issues which people are talking about, such as child labor and forced labor, they come into form. You find that people, as in the past, you know, there was a, a family member who would earn an income uh, that would support a family, and the people, the children would have a proper kind of an education, and uh, you know, you would have a proper kind of a housing and food. If you don't have that kind of an income to access your basic necessities, what is happening in the developing world particularly is that you see that the labor of other members of the family is being allocated to different end users. So it's not just that you are working, but then let's say your spouse also has to work, you know, your children have to go and work. And child labor is essentially something that results from that. Now, if you provide somebody with a living income, those kind of social ills can be tackled quite early on. And and actually, that was going to be my next question for you. So if you do, in a space, the difference between not being on a living income or not being mm-hmm. paid living wages versus the difference, what does it feel or look like if someone's able to have a living income or access living wages? The, the point is that if you don't have a living wage or a living income, obviously, there are things that uh, you cannot avail of in terms of uh, food, having proper nutrition, you know, people, you know, the poverty line structure, for example, the way the World Bank is defined, that focuses solely on the calorie intake. And, uh, but it's much more than just having calories. It's also having a proper, uh, proper nutrition, a proper nutrition-based diet, uh, according to the standards that have been specified by organizations such as the World Health Organization or the Food and Agricultural Organization. So, I mean, these are things that you really need. And what happens is that people then buy, because they buy bad quality food, they can fall ill. And if they fall ill, it becomes very difficult if you don't have a proper income to be able to deal with the contingencies. And it's, sometimes it becomes chronic. Sometimes 
you can take care of it. But most often, the problem remains that uh, there is no kind of sustainability to people's life. And and what about to the businesses? So are there tangible benefits to businesses if they, you know, put their hands in their pockets and pay more money, fundamentally pay the living wage? You know, there's been a lot of research on that. I mean, I, I don't know offhand, but I, I mean, there's been psychological research. There has been other kinds of research that has, you know, on looking at productivity that has taken place. And much of this research essentially shows that if you have a happy worker, productivity increases. And psychologically, it also um, creates certain kind of a benefits. Take, for example, so what is happening with the universal basic income pilots that have been launched by the basic income earth network and there um, what you find is that when uh, people have that kind of an income one of the things that they found for example in canada they found in finland and in many other places was that uh, the incidence of mental health actually went down and that's becoming a major, major issue uh, for people in, in this day and age, the mental health problems that accumulate because people are not secure. And so you, you need to provide some kind of a security. Basic income is one way, but there also you have certain problems because you don't know at what level to pitch it at. Whereas in living income, we can tell you exactly in a certain, quite specifically, what it should be, what the amount should be. although. They are location specific, you know, that we don't go beyond, uh, you can't sort of generalize over a, a population. You have to see uh, how the population lives and how they can, uh, and what they have to do to access services and necessities. And uh, you look at that and you define a living wage accordingly in that environment. I would say that, uh, you know, the businesses can do a lot in terms of sort of promoting uh, living wages. But the problem is that, look, I mean, take agribusiness, for example. You use the land of the developing countries, but all the produce, I mean, you know, that is that comes out is not for the benefit of the local populations. And almost invariably, it almost always uh, is exported uh, from these developing countries to the developed market economies where they can find a better price. And what you get for, uh, what you pay for let's say cocoa or coffee or other things is the markups on that in the developed market societies are quite high so you know you come to the point you know you say well can we uh, basically think about taking a dent in our profits uh, if we go that way the businesses well something needs to be done and many businesses have now signed up for the un guidelines on uh, business and human rights Many businesses have signed up for that, and they're worried. And the, you know what happens in terms of their reputations. You know that they they suffer, then it can have an impact on uh, uh, the final sales as well. So it works for uh, everybody if uh, a living wage and a living income is provided to farmers or to workers in agriculture, in manufacturing, in services. It's it's, it's fundamentally important, and the businesses have to seriously look at it. We, I was at a meeting recently and, you know, where we were talking about it, uh, about uh, how do we go about implementing living wages. And uh, what I found was that um, although there is a consensus 
on uh, bridging the gaps uh, between the prevailing and the living wages, what is not there is a kind of a strategy. There is no coordination there. Everybody is going in their own way. And one of the fundamental reasons for that is that, you know, we have done many exercises on living wages and provided certain kinds of benchmarks. But uh, not a single evaluation has taken place. And without an evaluation, you can't move forward you, because you need to know, okay, if you're implementing something, is uh, how can you go about implementing, you define a certain strategy. But then you want to know, is that working? Is the strategy working or not working? And why is it not working? Or why is it working? And then how can we sort of foster some kinds of partnerships uh, between businesses uh, to take the agenda forward? So the businesses can do a lot, but basically what they really need to do right now is to get coordinated. I mean, if they have an interest in um, seeing that people have living wages and living income, they need more coordination. And they need to bring in other stakeholders because you can't do it all, all on your own. It's, it's a shared responsibility. So you need to bring in workers' voices in there. What do the workers' organizations think about this? What do they say how they can, uh, how important a living income is for their members? And how can this promote um, well-being and welfare for a large number of people? Yeah. Thank you so much for taking us through that. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to unpick that a little bit more. So mm -hmm. as far as you touched on there, both the problem or the challenges around the fact that living wages are quite localised. So you can't, you know, it's not a universal, everybody has the same amount wherever you live or have you, but also the fact that there is no, there hasn't been this kind of proper evaluation yet. I mean, are there other challenges and hurdles that, that a business should be or a person sitting within a business that's thinking or listening to you and thinks, I would really like to be able to roll out a living wages? Well, proposal what, what else should they be aware of before they even start on this journey you see it, it's it's difficult for businesses so for example you know there have been many attempts and trying to make businesses responsible for the work that they do uh, particularly in the global supply chains and uh, the thing is there are a lot of problems which can only be sort of sorted out with what the ILO calls social dialogue now, social dialogue is something where you bring together, let's say, the governments, the employers, and, and the workers to, to a table. And then you basically discuss, I mean, what the strategies uh, should be. Just going it on your own, I think, creates a lot of problem and it can be self-defeating. So I think the businesses need to discuss these, these issues more with uh, the other stakeholders. And to see, I mean, you know, how they can go about implementing properly the living wages and living incomes. Ah, oh, great advice. Thank you so much. It's so refreshing to hear you as for sharing, you know, this is going to be hard. Do not underestimate this rather than that kind of like, oh, it's fabulous. It's the right thing. It's wonderful. If we just stay true to the, like the good causes, it's all going to be great. Yeah, no, exactly. Because, I mean, you know, when you look at global supply chains, for example, and you say, okay, uh, there is one organization, a multinational organization, and say, well, you're not paying your workers enough. But this multinational organization has a supplier uh, who may be a local and very often is somebody, let's say, um, an Indian, an Indonesian, or a Chinese, or somebody who's there. How they operate, can the businesses put some kind of a pressure on them to be able to pay their workers? living wages and living incomes? 
can the businesses um, uh, impress upon the, the governments that, okay, I mean, we can provide income, but what about uh, services? It is not for them to provide education and health, which I think is the responsibility of every country. I mean, every country should be responsible for actually providing healthcare uh, and, uh, and education uh, to its population. That's something very essential. So this is something that you can do by bringing everybody together to the table. This is not happening at the moment. So anybody listening who would like to be part of this, <laughs> please get in touch. <laughs> and therefore, as well, I, I guess, naturally, therefore, my kind of next question is, what would be your advice to those who are listening to this conversation, both in terms of overcoming these challenges, but also in terms of kind of trying to move this forward? I would say that, you know, people need to have a rights perspective. You know, you can't look at it otherwise. If you are living a good life, you know, you have to be of an opinion, you know, that everybody else is also entitled to a similar kind of a life. They need to be able to take care of the problems uh, that they have. I mean, people don't like seeing, I mean, you go to countries and you don't like seeing slums and how people live. It's it's very unnerving, you know, so, and, and we can talk about it till kingdom come, but I think people need to take certain kinds of an action. I mean, they can organize themselves in civil society groups or others and, and, and you know, basically lobby for their own country people or of their own compatriots and say that, look, these people who are at the lower end of the social ladder need to be propped up and uh, the government should uh, be responsible and some, some kind of a action needs to be taken. This is what what we did. I mean, when when it's not something out of the blue, or uh, this is what we did while we were at the ILO and when we were working there. Uh, myself and Richard Anker, I mean, who's who was a, a person who actually defined the methodology for estimating a living wage and living income. So um, this is what we always promoted: that uh, civil society groups, employers groups, and workers groups, they all need to sort of take certain kind of an action to promote rights. Thank you so much. And for anybody listening, I'll make sure I put lots of links into the words that sit alongside the podcast so that you can go and check out all of this uh, work, both the methodologies, the business case for living wages, universal living income pieces, UN guidelines, you know, everything that as far as been sort of talking about. So you can get hold of all of this and, and have it in one place. And so I was wanting to kind of draw this conversation to the end, although I feel like we've scratched the surface. I literally could sit here all day um, and learn huge amounts from you. But your time is precious and I don't want to keep you for, from the rest of your day. I was wondering what is next for you? What is your sort of life kind of mission that we should look at, but also the work that you're immediately focused on at the moment? No, I'm not going to sit back and, you know, basically see you know, these the certain trends, these unnerving trends that uh, people can uh, drop people into poverty and uh, they have uh, little access to income and uh, they cannot access services, they cannot access basic necessities of life. And I'm going to continue fighting for that. And I'm just doing a very small thing. Actually, I'm not even uh, in the implementation game. I'm only trying to show people that, look, okay, if you're serious, this is what a living income or a living wage should be. So I'm this work, I'm going to continue. I, I recently was uh, 
well, not recently, about a couple of years back, I was in Pakistan and uh, my niece, who's a lawyer, she came up to me and she said something that, uh, you know, we use a lot of servants in our houses, but we don't pay them a living wage. So I just basically asked her, I said, listen, uh, do, what do you mean by a living wage? And uh, she just turned around and she said, well, I mean, something that um, would enable people to live a decent life. I mean, I said, yeah, that's fine. I mean, that's my definition as well. But um, how much do you think it should be? And people then get sort of very confused. And you come up from the top of your head, uh, you know, certain kind of an ideas of what kind of an income you pay them. But if you have a kind of a framework that this the living income or, or a living wage should be enough to uh, enable you to have proper food, you have a proper housing, your children can have proper education, can access adequate health services, you have proper clothing, you have time for leisure and other stuff, you see. So all these things become important. So I've I've been working in that direction and I'm continuing to do the research. I mean, it's not much, but it, I, I believe that it is something that uh, is a step in, in the right direction. Amazing. I'm literally got my pom-poms out. I am rallying and a total cheerleader. Um, as far well, please, all the best with your work. If anybody's listening and wants to become part of this, wants to know more, wants to be involved, do reach out. We are here. This is what the whole point of Business Fights Poverty and our our uh, podcast series and the community is all about. But as for Khan, you are definitely a social impact pioneer. A massive thank you for your time today. And, and thank uh, you because I, I do believe that, I mean, you know, business against poverty is, these are the kind of, sort of steps you need to take, I mean, and to make people more aware of what exactly is going, uh, is going around and uh, how they can help in sort of overcoming some of the, um, the problems. Uh, that exists. They don't have to do much, just a little bit by themselves. And then everything sort of will add up together. Oh, we heard it here, everybody. That's why we're here. <laughs> As for a massive thank you very much, sir. Uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. And um, yes, I look forward to hearing more as uh, as your work unfolds. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.